to the April Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Robb-Johns. Hello. Due to various pressures, we haven't done a podcast together for a while now, so let's put that to rights. As always, there's a lot to look forward to in the next issue of Sound on Sound, but first, let's see what Hugh's been working on over the last few weeks that has been memorable in some way. Quite a lot of things, really. Um, I think most of my time recently has been taken up with uh, loudspeakers and with uh, mic preamps. Um, I've just done the ATC SEM25s. They've been out for a couple of years now, uh, but strangely, we've we've really struggled to get a pair into review because it seems that uh, as quick as they've made the things, they've been bought and, and uh, used in studio, so it's been hard to get hold of them. I was very impressed with those. I mean, they're quite expensive, but you can see where the money goes. They, they really do perform very well. Um, and I've also been uh, reviewing PMC's new um, active, proper, genuinely active two-way models, the 2.2 series, uh, the 225s and the 226s. Um, and I'm very, very impressed with those. Again, they are quite expensive, but uh, they really do perform significantly better than the the, uh, the TB2s and the DB1s that they will uh, eff- effectively replace. So that was good. Um, preamps, probably too many to mention, really. A lot of them have been 500 series modules. That seems to have really taken off in certainly in the last couple of years. And the number of people that are now making 500 series um, rack mount chassis to house the units and, and little portable chassis as well. The other thing I've been looking at, I spent a couple of hours working on the um, Slate Audio Raven, the MTX and the smaller version, the MTI, which are, um, how could you describe them? They are multi-touch... A giant iPad. I just... A giant, yeah, that's a good way of describing it in many ways, actually, a giant iPad. Um, basically, it's it's a big high-resolution screen. You display the uh, output from your door on it. It's a multi-touch mixer so that you can put your fingers on the screen and drag as many controls as are on the screen. So all the faders, um, all the knobs and so on, you can just grab them and move them. And it's a really, really interesting way of working. I was a bit ambivalent about it when I first saw it, I must admit. Um, and I, I was concerned that you kind of get a bit of a suntan from the from the screen. But it runs very cool. There is, there's no heat that comes off it to any significant degree. And you do feel very involved with what you're working. It's just so nice to be able to, for example, look at the waveform and then drag your finger to do the automation. It's, it's a very natural, instinctive and direct way of controlling things. And mixing on the screen, even though there's nothing physically there and you're just dragging your fingers up and down a piece of glass. Yeah, I think the next um, piece of technology there has got to be where you have electrodes in the glass that give you nerve sensations in your finger to make you think you're actually touching a real fader. Well, actually, funny you should mention that because there are some um, some mobile phone technology now that's, that's being developed that does exactly that. Um, and they can actually put signals into a membrane on the top of the glass surface and make it bulge. So, um, for example, I know I've seen prototypes where um, it can form the outlines of keys on a keyboard. So you get a tactile sense of where you are physically on the screen uh, when you're typing messages and so on. And there's no reason why you couldn't use the same technology um, to give you the impression of a physical fader on the glass. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see a lot more developments in that area to give you the impression of tactile feedback one way or another. Yeah, it's definitely going to go that way. It's it's fairly expensive, but it's actually a lot cheaper than a high-end console would be. And in many ways, it's it's more direct and a more intuitive way of working. And the MTI, which is the smaller version, is actually very affordable for small project studios. And I think this is the start of a new technology that's going to develop really, really quickly. It'll be uh, interesting to see how soon other people get on the same bandwagon if it does work. Absolutely. But what about you? What have you been doing that you can tell us about without having to kill us afterwards? Well, I went to Korg the other day and saw a few things which I would have to kill you if I told you about, but they'll all be released at Mesa, so we'll know about that then. 
I've just finished reviewing the Waves Money Murrican plugin collection, and I was really impressed by that in the way that it allows the user to apply some of his rather sophisticated production treatments. And normally you'd have to hook together a lot of outboard or plugins to do these things, but in these they've all been combined into individual plugins. So each one focuses on a specific effect or process, but all the little additions and twists and extra things that he puts in there are built into the plugins. For example, the reverb and the delay have got sort of built-in distortion phases and compression, this kind of thing. And when combined, they can actually sound really good. Best of all, each plugin's been distilled down to a relatively small number of controls, so it's uh, it's easy to drive without getting too complicated. I mean, if you're very experienced, you could hook together what you've already got and probably do much the same kind of thing, but it would require a lot of expertise. Interesting. I've also finished reviewing some low-cost ProDeep coaxial monitors and the usual assortment of microphones. It seems like coaxial's making a bit of a resurgence both in studio monitors and live sound. Have you noticed that, Hugh? Yes. Yeah, I don't know whether the technology's just become easier to do or, or whether it's more affordable, but yeah, there do seem to be more of those coming around now. Yeah, the one thing that concerns me a little bit about coaxial speakers is that if they're designed traditionally with a, a circular tweeter in the centre, that the vertical and horizontal dispersion are going to be the same, so you can't kind of massage them to be wider than they are high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Some of them do use waveguides of various forms to try and control that. It could potentially be an issue. Another product that impressed me a lot was the Laney Ironheart IRT Studio Amplifier Head. Now, a guitar amp might not seem very sound on sound, but this 15-watt valve amplifier has a 1-watt studio mode, and it's got a built-in dummy load so you can use it without speakers without risking the thing blowing up. You can DI it with or without an internal speaker emulator, and there's even a USB connection that allows you to record both the amp sound with or without speaker emulation and the clean guitar sound at the same time onto two channels of your door. You can then send the clean track back over the USB and reamp it through the amplifier, mic it up in the traditional way, so it's really, really flexible. And when it comes to after work, I've been building more guitars that I don't actually need and experimenting with different pickup wiring systems to get more tonal variation from a single instrument. With my live sound hat on, I've done a couple of events now using the iPad-controlled Mackie 1608 digital mixer with good results. And of course, it's that time of year when I have to start planning for Malvern's Westfest, which this year is on the 6th of July. And that gives me a really good opportunity to test new PA gear for review under real battle conditions, and quite often under real mud as well. <laughs> The next big event for us is Music Messer in Frankfurt, where we're expecting to see a raft of new products. Uh, lots of releases over and above what we saw at the US NAM show earlier this year, so we'll let you know all about that when it happens. All right, now it's on to question and answer time, and we have a few questions from the Sound on Sound post bag. OK, so I've got the first one, and it relates to uh, guitar recording, uh, where we're asked... If it's better to DI a valve amp via a speaker simulator or simply to use a, a DI box to record the speaker output and then use a, a cabinet emulator from an amp modelling plugin in the computer, what do you think? Well, the first thing is a, a safety issue. If you're going to DI uh, a valve amplifier, you need a special kind of DI box that can accept speaker level signals, not just line level or mic level. Otherwise, the thing's going to be in real trouble. So your DI box. Mm. You also need to have either a speaker or a dummy load connected, uh, unless, of course, you've got those Laney amplifiers or one of the other small amplifiers that has an internal dummy load that allows it to be operated without a speaker. Um, I mean, who can probably tell you all the technical reasons, but you shouldn't run a valve amplifier without a load because the output transformer can get cooked. Yeah, it'll die, basically. Not a good idea. OK, well, that's the definitive answer from Hugh. Most of the simpler hardware speaker emulators are analogue, and they offer a small range of cabinet sounds sounding more or less authentic, depending on which one you buy. 
and the Sequist Motherload is a firm sound-on-sound favourite. In my own experience though, plug-in cabinet emulations that are based on convolution actually provide a more accurate sound uh, of a cabinet and a microphone interacting in a real space. The advantage is that you can choose from different cabinets, different microphones, different microphone placements. So um, the last time I did anything like this I actually took the sound from the valve amplifier but without any kind of processing, just the raw, gritty, horrible fly-in-a-jam-jar kind of sound that you get going full bandwidth and then put it through the cabinet simulators in Logic's own guitar amp modelling plugin, uh, leaving the guitar amp part of it out and just using the cabinet and it sounded great so I'd probably go that way. The next question relates to Omni microphones and it asks where it might be appropriate to use them given that cardio patterns exclude more of the unwanted sound from off-axis. Um, that sounds like a Hugh question, I think. I, it's funny, actually. On the forum recently, I was trying to start a campaign in, in favour of resurrecting first-order microphones, which are omnidirectional mics and figure-of-eight mics, um, in favour of cardioids. I think cardioids became omnipresent, if that's not a, a, a silly pun, um, in the probably the... 70s. I think everybody had to have a, a directional mic and it was a cardioid mic. They just became ridiculously popular. And I'm not really convinced that they're as good as everybody seems to think they are. They seem to have as many problems as they have benefits. This thing about cardioid mics are, are directional and exclude more ambient sound. Well, yes, that's true. They are, but not by a huge amount. Directivity index is, is a scale we use to identify how directional a microphone is. And an omni is given a, a directivity index of one, and a cardioid is only 1.7. In effect, what that means is if you put an omni in a place in front of a sound source that sounds good, you get a good balance of direct to ambient sound. You can put a cardioid mic 1.7 times further away for the same balance. So you can move it a little bit further back, or conversely, if it's in the same place, it'll sound 1.7 times drier than... Um, uh, than the Omni on its own. So what this suggests is if you move an Omni maybe a third closer than you would with your um, cardioid mic, you're going to get roughly the same balance of ambient sound to yeah, direct sound. exactly that. If you moved a cardioid mic closer to the source, then um, because it's a directional microphone, a, a pressure gradient microphone, you get this bass boost, this proximity effect. So if you move cardioid mics very close to the source, it can sound very woolly and woofy and bassy and boomy, um, which often isn't good and that's why you don't do it. With an Omni mic, you can move it closer without the tonality changing. So you can get away with closer placements without affecting the, the sound in quite such a bad way. I was going to say, the other consideration there, of course, is that most sound sources are not actually a point source. Um, something like a guitar body is actually quite wide. Mm. And so if you move a cardioid mic very close to it, you start to focus on only one part of the area. and Anything coming off axis is coloured. That was the next point I was going to make. Um, with an Omni microphone, there is no physical microphone that is truly Omni. They all have a, a slight squeezing of the polar pattern, if you like, at, particularly at higher frequencies. But in general, wherever sound comes from towards that microphone, it will sound pretty much the same. The frequency response from any angle is more or less the same. With a cardioid microphone, that's not the case. And as you go further and further off axis, then you lose a lot of the high end. Um, you tend to get more of the low end. And so the spectrum becomes much more colored, much more obviously not right. Now, if you move um, a cardioid microphone close to the source, as you say, then you get the direct sound coming in the front sounding the way it should. But any sound that's coming from further away from the sides of, uh, of the source coming into the side of the microphone, it's going to be much more colored. And you then become aware that you've got a much more spectrally altered sound um, than you would if you had a, an Omni mic in the same place.
So there's an argument that in a situation where spill is unavoidable, you're actually better off using Omnis because the spill that comes in is actually going to sound clean. I mean, for example, with a drum kit, if you put Omnis all around a drum kit, the amount of cymbal getting onto the snare mic is going to sound like a clean cymbal, whereas if you're using a cardioid, it's going to be some horribly filtered thing. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Um, so people shouldn't be frightened of using Omnis. All it means is that you need to perhaps place them a little bit closer than you might with a cardioid. But it, these things are always swings around about. As you say, the, the spill that comes in the side of an Omni mic is still usable spill. It doesn't upset the mix in the same way that spill coming into the side of a cardioid mic often does. And the last thing is something to do with a phase response at the bottom end. Because of the way cardioid mics are made directional, you get quite a pronounced phase shift business going on at the low frequencies. And you can often hear that, particularly with... Um, acoustic instruments, guitars and pianos, uh, violins, those kind of things that have very recognisable harmonic structures. You become aware that a cardioid microphone's phase response at the bottom end affects the tonality in a slightly strange way. And omni microphones just sound much more natural. That's true. The cardioid often has what I describe as a lack of focus. You can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something not right and it sounds a little bit phasey. Yeah. But one thing I was going to say is that if you're not really sure about Omnis and you want to experiment without spending a lot of money, you can go online and buy these little Karma things, which are so cheap they probably cost less than the cable you plug them into. Oh, the little silver bullets. Yeah, they're yeah. little tiny things, but they're really good for experimentation and just learning your way around the Omni mic techniques. Mm, absolutely. If you go back to the... Um to the classic recordings made in the in the 50s in particular, cardio microphones, although they were available, they weren't used that much. They weren't that common. Um, and a lot of recordings were done with either omnidirectional microphones or with figure of eight microphones. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to be said for the way they sound and the way they work. Um, and personally, I find I use omnis and figure of eights probably more than I use cardioids. Cardioids, um, they only really reject sound that's directly from behind them. Um, and, and in that case, you might get 20, 25 dB of rejection maybe from a sound source that's directly behind the mic. But if it's around the side, um, 90 degrees onto a cardioid mic, the level's only going to be about 3, maybe 6 dBs down, no more than that. So it's, you know, it's not as narrow and focused as a lot of people seem to think it is. Think of uh, the polar pattern of a cardioid mic is basically like an apple in three dimensions, and the stalk at the back is the back of the microphone, and that's where you get that deep null. But around the sides, it's only a little bit less sensitive than it is around the front, and people seem to think that it's more carrot-shaped than it really is. That's true. So it makes perfect sense in a live situation where you need to point the deaf part of the microphone at a monitor, for example, to reduce feedback, but in the studio, often you can get a much more natural sound using omnis. Yeah, I quite agree. Well, that's all we have time for this month, so it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Goodbye, thanks for listening. And uh, if anyone knows where all the time goes, please let us know. We'll try and get back to you sooner than we did last time. <laughs>